Prime Research Cast. Okay, this is the week of May 3rd, and this is the STEM Prime Research Cast. Uh, okay, so this will be the fifth episode of the series, and um, there was a few things I wanted to cover really quickly. Uh, the first is I'm going to start being more mm, active with giving you updates on the simulations. Um, so starting today, the simulations are at a point where we are going to start developing um, the core, you know, the core scripts. However, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with putting it up on, on GitHub until it's at least semi-functional. So uh, don't expect to see this up on a public repo until it is at least semi-functional. Um, until then, I'm going to be keeping it in, in our private uh, repositories. Um, next thing is that this episode is, I'm, I know I took a I, I hiatus for a minute. I had to do some updates, got a new screen, new card, a uh, bunch, of, bunch of new drives. Uh, the old drives were just ready to totally donk out on me. Um, I still haven't run the cable. And I don't know why I said cat eight in the last, uh, in the update video, <laughs> not running cat eight. Um, but I am running cat, uh, six E. So hopefully that will help with, uh, the speed and the, you know, the radio pollution in this area. It's insane how bad our speeds are here because of the wireless. I shouldn't even be wireless anyway. I'm doing what I'm doing. It's not something I want just kind of floating out there. So yeah, that cable is going to going to going, going, that cable is going to get run, uh, sometime within the next couple of weeks. Um, let's see what else. Um, oh yeah. So <laughs> the episode, the episode I've been working on, I am still not ready to release it. So uh, because of everything else I've been doing, I've been handling a bunch of other things. Um, I've barely gotten any coding done. It's not going to be up until next Monday, but that will be the day. Um, I had originally planned on doing this other episode for today, which I had previously um, filmed, but I am redoing that because uh, it, I don't know. It got a little too personal. So this is the, I guess, re-imagining of that, that episode. What this episode is, is... Okay, let's rewind for a second. Let me explain what has happened and sort of kind of the walls I've come up against with this project. First of all, I'm still wearing my wrist brace. Okay, first of all, um, this has been an interesting project to promote. Um, it's been oh, interesting to see how certain people have, have responded and accepted it, criticisms, what they've had to say about it, that sort of thing. But uh, I've posted it in several forums, and for a couf couple of days I was... Again, I was making posts on Reddit 
probably looking at it, oh, excuse me, retrospectively, <laughs> maybe it wasn't the best place to uh, just start posting, but I did. And uh, I was posting it in a thread in the, um, the culture thread, okay? Because the culture and Star Trek have been some pretty heavy influences on my decision to start this project. Um, and because, you know, people that like the culture uh, usually tend to be the kind of people that like the culture because of what the culture is, because of the atmosphere, the, you know, the just awesomeness that the culture is. So I thought it would be a good group of people to kind of, you know, promote this to, which, um, yes and no. Um, some of the people were interested and, you know, said they were going to listen to some of these episodes while uh, some of the other people <laughs> immediately started to attack me and, uh, you know, asking me about my degree, um, whether I've done any studies before, uh, if I've published any research, that sort of thing. And to be fair, um, at first I was kind of taken aback and I got, I got offended for a second until I stopped to really think about what they were saying. Because, um, you know, I don't have 12 PhDs, one for each um, subject that we're tackling with this project. And uh, I haven't published any, any uh, research and yeah, so it's um, kind of a strange situation to be in. However, I fully understand that position. Um, I am totally a scientifically minded person. And if I were them, I would be <laughs> looking at me with just as much uh, scrutiny and, and skepticism as they are. So I can't fault them like at all for, you know, what they ask, you know, the kind of hard questions they throw up at me. That being said, that's what this episode is. Um, I, I don't have what you would call academic credibility. I don't have papers published. I'm not a, you know, leading field researcher in, in any one field. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk you through who I am. <laughs> so you know who I am, what I'm about, why I'm doing this, and where my, my, where my scruples are, where my, you know, ideologies are, um, where I, where my faults are, what I look for in, in the research that I'm, that I'm conducting and, and what I'm trying to get out of this. So, um, before we start that and get into the meat of that, I wanted to cover uh, I wanted to talk about something really quickly. So this last week, um, I listened, I may have mentioned this <laughs> a couple of times, maybe not, I can't remember. Um, I listened to a podcast called Words and Number, Words and Number, Words and Numbers. And they're two gentlemen that have, uh, you know, run this podcast for the, uh, <laughs> ah, brain blank, the 
economic, the foundation for economic, foundation, oh my gosh, FEE, Foundation for Economic Education. Is that it? I think that's it. I think that's it. Okay, so that's who these two gentlemen are. They're fascinating people to listen to. Um, they make a lot of good points. They're very objective. Uh, but when they do, you know, kind of teeter into the, I don't know, opinion zone, I, I can't say I agree with them on everything, but I agree with their, with their approaches. I agree with how they approach topics and analyze them and dissect them and, you know, put them through the ringer. So, um, yeah, if you don't listen to them, if you're interested in economics, I, I would highly suggest um, listening to their, their podcast, at least giving it a shot. It's, it's very interesting. Okay, so um, their podcast, uh, it wasn't this, pre this last one. It was, it was one I had accidentally missed. And so I was going through all my podcast lists the other day, and I realized that I had missed uh, that particular episode, so I, I hit play. It was the episode called something like why you can't sue the police, something along those lines. So um, I started listening to it and um, not directly tied to the topic, kind of in a sort of leading up kind of weird centerpiece, I guess. They began to talk about, they started to talk about the implications of kind of the moral dilemma that we're in. Um, you have people that are getting COVID and, you know, developing the sim symptoms, getting sent to the hospital. And then you have, you know, your as of yet undetermined percentage that end up uh, dying. So um, they brought up kind of a, an interesting <laughs> quandary we're all sort of dealing with right now. And it's the, it's a really tough thing to to sort of kind of I don't know try to reason out and that is that you have your people that are dying and people that are getting sick and you have the economic cost of that and so we are stuck in this kind of situation where we are sort of looking at the balance and trying to decide the the cost of what a life is worth really that is where it comes down to and uh so you have kind of this uh this atmosphere that that is sort of oh how, how do you want to say this i guess catalyzed maybe is i don't even know if that's the right word but it, it comes from the fact that we use currency as as a value exchange so we're in a situation where we are literally trying to, you know, decide what a human life is worth, where we're trying to decide whether or not to let people go back to work. And, and is, is that going to be worth it? Is, is, it'll be worth it if, you know, we lose another 0.03%, we added, you know, 0.03% to the, to the death tally. Is that, is that worth it? And it's, it's a really weird thing to ask, but it's also kind of necessary in, in the situation that we're in. So 
I just want to kind of reiterate what I've already said in the previous episodes that under under a system where you have money and you have a situation like this, you are forced to make a value decision of life, you know, how much life is worth versus how much money you're willing to lose. And that's, that puts people in a situation where they have to make a moral, a moral decision, you know, as to who possibly dies. Well, that's kind of a problem. And from their perspective, they were saying it's not, it's not a moral decision. And, you know, when you're looking at it objectively, it's not, it's, it's a matter of fact, you know, what, what is going to end up giving us the best return sort of a thing, you know, not return. What are, what is going to end up causing us to lose less? And so you have to come in to, you know, take all of these things into account and decide, you know, whether another so many people dying is worth losing another so many billions of dollars. And it's just a a decision that even though there's a sort of rational way to look at this, because of what money is, because of what it represents, it really is it really does bring, turn things into a moral question. It just does. Because it's not directly proportionate to what a life, the the value dimensions of what a life is. You're dealing with something that could represent many things, including, and, and not just represent many things, but can be converted into many things and, and, you know, manipulated in so many hundreds of billions of different ways that you're not just weighing, you know, life against life. You're weighing life against uh, economic prosperity and who gets to eat and, um, you know, your home, your bed, all the nice things, all the stuff that money can buy. It's not a, it's not a one-to-one value, you know, value comparison. They're two completely <laughs> separate things. And I think that's a problem that currency introduces. (sighs) No, I don't think it's a problem. I know this is a problem that currency introduces. Now, if we were to look at a situation like this under, well, okay, first of all, we already know that under an epiconomy, unless things were just so terribly out of control, (laughs) under an epiconomy, okay, specifically under a STEM epiconomy, in this such a situation, okay, first of all, I'm like ugh, 96% confident we wouldn't end up in a situation like this under a STEM app economy. But if we were to, if a situation like this were to escalate and elevate into the point where, to where we are basically dealing with the exact same situation, but under a STEM app economy, you don't have to reduce, you know, your, your decision-making calls to a value, you know, to a life 
value comparison. Instead, you're, you're breaking it down to a life-to-life -life comparison, which it makes things so much easier to deal with. You're basically taking things down to, and I, this still isn't a simple, you know, simple case to deal with, a simple scenario to deal with, but you know, the trolley, the trolley uh, thought, thought experiment. So you have kind of, okay, we have the lives that, that have already lost, and then we've got the lives that we are going to lose if, um, if we just all go back to work and, and keep, you know, trucking on and doing what we're doing and, and bring everything back up to speed. Okay. The, the, you have a certain amount of lives you're going to lose there. But if we don't, and we continue to, um, stay indoors and, and continue to, to have social, uh, distancing, then you have another possible level of maybe not loss of life, but you have a level of um, life quality drop. So under a STEM ep economy, we're dealing with a value to value comparison. And we're not, now we're looking at, okay, if we bring production all the way back up, ramp it back up, how many lives are we at risk for losing? And then we have to kind of weigh that against, okay, if we don't bring production all the way back up, are we going to be able to produce enough food and materials to sustain the populace? Even, even at you know, minimal levels for a little while, are we going to have what's necessary to sustain the, popula the, the population? Um, now, if things got really bad and food and uh, you know, nece medicines, necessary, necessary um, uh, products drop to the point where we do begin to have uh, a loss of life due to, you know, not enough food or not enough medicine or not enough, you know, whatever, whatever else it may be that's, that turns out to be, you know, vital to life at, if it got to that point. But now you're, now you have a, a much more even, you know, a value comparison. You can look at both of these things and say, well, it doesn't look like we're going to lose lives over here. Now, over here, if we ramp production back up, we're, we're going to lose more lives. And we can mitigate that by not ramping it back up or ramping it up carefully or making sure everybody has, you know, the utility sort of dress, masks, whatever they need to be able to go back to work without putting themselves in danger. But you see what I'm saying? You're, you're dealing with a value comparison that makes sense now. You're dealing with life to life. And even though it may not be, you know, in the situation we're in right now, it wouldn't be, you know, a life loss to life loss. But you're, you're talking about life loss to quality of life loss or, you know, devaluation with maybe a, a couple of um, couple of deaths you know related to not enough food and, and products being propagated throughout the, the society. 
but the, the the there's no do you see what I'm saying? You don't have money, which can can is a substitute for any number of things, which makes it difficult to put a price on a human life. You, I mean, how crazy is that? That we are we are trying to decide how many you know how much money is worth how, the value of a life. So, and yeah, I mean, that's a problem. It's a problem because you can't make that comparison. They're not the same, they're not the same uh, value dimensions. They're completely different things. Even though money, because of how we have our economy structured and our society d designed, has, uh, mm, I don't know, an impact or, man, what, it's such a weird thing. It is so <sighs> money. God. What a weird, weird, crazy idea. But you see what I'm saying, right? You see the difference. You see the difference between trying to put a price on someone's life versus trying to decide, okay, how, how, you know, where are we going to lose fewer lives? What, what, what direction do we go? to lose the fewer amount of lives. It's life to life. It's not, it's life to life and maybe value of life, depending on, on the situation. But you're not trying to put a price tag on it. It's, it's an equal comparison. It's life to life, you know, stone to stone, bird to bird, cherry to cherry, whatever you want to use as your comparison. But it's not apples or oranges. It's not two completely separate value dimensions that really you can't equate to each other. Sure, you can say, well, a dollar bill can, you know, you can, money, you can equate to anything, that's its purpose. But the problem is that that's its purpose, is to equate it to anything, including a life, which makes it a very difficult, <sighs> you're not equating life to life, you're equating life to maybe life, but Maybe a new truck, maybe, you know, a new boat, maybe a bunch of food or whatever else. It's not directly related to life, which makes this a moral problem. So, words and numbers, guys. I agree with you that objectively it is not a moral problem, but I think it is also a moral problem for that very reason. And, I mean, if you guys <laughs> listen to this, but... Under a STEM EP economy, you don't have to deal with that. You're dealing with true value of any one thing against the true value of any one thing. You're dealing with value value. Okay, you're dealing with like value dimension comparisons. They're they're the same value dimensions. There there's there's nothing different about it, and nothing that makes it into a moral issue. Okay, so. That's what I wanted to say before we get going. <sighs> Let me think for a second. I am going to hit pause and take a quick break. And then we are going to jump right into who this guy is. <laughs> this is yeah, fun. Okay, so the title of this episode, <laughs> episode number five, is 
post-scarcity? Seriously? Who even is this guy? So let's get started. Um, I'm going to walk you through kind of the main points in my life. Okay, I ditched the last one. It was like two hours long, two and a half hours long. And I don't know. I just, I felt like it got a little too personal. And maybe I <laughs> talked about things that really didn't have anything to do with anything. So I'm going to give you kind of a, I don't know, I guess a crash course on who I am. And hopefully with the information I give you, I'm going to be as honest as I possibly can without getting too personal. But um, you can then make your own kind of decision as to whether or not you find me credible and whether or not you think this is a legitimate endeavor, okay? Um, so again, I'm doing this because uh, I feel like it's necessary at this point. And um, not only am I kind of glad that I get one more week to work on um, the, the, uh, the three functions of money and uh, thermodynamics, but I also get a chance to up front and early kind of tell you who I am and why I'm doing this, where I came from, where, um, you know, what, what, what has happened in my life to make me who I am and what has led me to this, this point where I have honestly just kind of dropped everything else, um, quit my, my job and just started focusing on this because I feel like it's that important. If, if even the remote, uh, most remote possibility that this is achievable, that this is, you know, a viable method to, to achieving post-scarcity and, you know, getting rid of corruption and dealing with homelessness and, and, you know, all the problems that we deal with that are related to money. Why would I not be doing this? Why would I not be, you know, set, set on this endeavor? So this all started <laughs> when I was a kid. Honestly, it really did. Um, as a child, I grew up in a strict LDS household. Now, because I grew up in a strict LDS household, I was indoctrinated. I was a heavily indoctrinated child. Now, since then, you know, um, my family has become much more liberal, all of them, parents included. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the experience growing up in, in the church was a very potent, I guess, experience. Um, when I was a kid, I was, you know, smaller uh, than most, most of the kids of my age until I hit puberty. But yeah, I was smaller. I wore thick glasses. I've got terrible eyesight. Like, honestly, I've got terrible eyesight. Just putting that out there. So I got my ass handed to me <laughs> a lot. Uh, everywhere from getting the shit kicked out of me at recess in front of the girls I had crushes on to 
getting my nuts kicked in the middle of class. So yeah, fun times, been through it all. But on the upside, uh, that kind of put me into a reclusive, I guess that's not totally on the upside, but it put me into a sort of, um, it pushed me to be introspective. And it pushed me to kind of turn to um, learning more about computers. Uh, You know, I didn't have the drive to want to go out and hang out with those kids. So I would often stay at home and take things apart and, you know, tinker with stuff and see if I could figure out how, how it all worked. So... Yeah, that kind of, kind of, I guess that was sort of the early catalyst that pushed me towards towards computers. Um, in eighth grade, I took a class on uh, on HyperCard. I don't know if any if anybody really knows what <laughs> HyperCard is. It's uh, it's kind of the predecessor to Macromedia's, you know, Flash. Um, basically, it was kind of designed to do like slide, I guess slides, presentations in programmable layers. But you could also, this is why I kind of dug it, you could also do video games. I don't know if anybody remembers Zork, right? Zork, it was a text-based, terminal-based kind of game where it would say you're now standing in a dark cavern with, what are they, Gru's? Gru's, and there's a Gru sneering at you or something like that. And then you have to say, you know, attack or go north or run or escape, whatever. But there was kind of the, the, the lineage of that kind of video game came to something that was on the old Nintendo called um, Shadow Key. Uh, there, there were a couple other games like it, but instead of just text-based, you would have, it would be text, you know, text-based with a sort of visual augment. So you would have a picture of the room and then it would have a description and kind of what was going on and, and ask you what you wanted to do. That was why I, I kind of started getting into this because I wanted to make my own little <laughs> Zork shadow, shadow key, shadow key, shadow gate. I think it's shadow gate type, uh, type of, um, games. Okay. So moving on, um, next major event. Uh, I was never totally, uh, how do I say this? I, I believed in the church 100%. I was like, just, you know, totally indoctrinated, bent on on the idea that the church was true. And by the way, if you are a member of the church, you know, whatever, more power to you. I, I, I'm, I'm not even touching whether or not you should, you know, can believe in your faith or not. I'm just, I'm just relaying my experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so throughout my teenage years, you know, I, I drank and smoked pot, that sort of thing. So I wasn't like, you know, true blue, hardcore Mormon. Uh, I believed in it, and I tried to do my best to adhere by it, but I didn't, I don't know, I still drank and smoked pot, I guess, whatever. Um, time goes on and I turn 18 and I don't go on my mission. So everybody in my ward and my family was like, ah, you know, he's not going on his mission. What's wrong with him? But I just wasn't 
like mentally ready to do something that intense, you know, like 18 years old, go off for two years, dress in a suit and tie every single day and serve in the war, but no thanks. But uh, I turned 21 and have this experience. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's kind of embarrassing talking about it because to me it was just like, you know, such a, a sign, but now looking back on it and understanding what I understand now, it makes a lot more sense to me. But yeah, so at 21, I decided to go on my mission. Okay, I leave, I get called to the Philippines, the Bacolod mission, which is, you know, kind of more in the middle of the Philippine islands. And I get put on an island called Panay. Um, I serve my two missions, or two missions, I served my two years, and I come back. And at this point, um, I was still like super charged up for my mission and I just, you know, wanted to do the whole Mormon thing. You know, I wanted to come home, come home off a mission. I wanted to start. Sorry, <laughs> uh, not yeah. stupid. That's just stupid. To me, this seemed very stupid. Oh, this seems very stupid now looking at it. Okay. I wanted to start, uh, Mormon metal band. Yeah, get your laughs out now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to do that. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have like 12 kids and do the whole family thing and be successful and get a crazy job, you know, on my own 12,000 companies, you know, the, the ideal Mormon like end game. Okay. And. Um, my cousin approaches me and tells me he's going to California over the summer to work for a company called Dewey, Dewey Pest Control, to sell pest control door to door. Apparently, this is kind of a thing that return missionaries do from Salt Lake City. They go down to um, uh, California and, and do this for Dewey. So I said, sure, you know, I'll get some sales experience, whatever. Go down there start um well it was like let's see there was like one two three four i think it, there were four of us in the apartment and so i can't remember when i quit <laughs> but it was like it was like a week maybe two weeks into it where i'm just i was just done with it i was just fed up with it and you know i've, I've got my reasons for it. First of all, I'm not a sales guy. I don't like selling stuff that I don't know anything about. And here they are giving me, you know, chemicals, right? Pesticides, no less. And they want me to go door to door and tell these people like face to face without being a, you know, a chemical engineer or a, uh, you know, um, a biologist telling them that this is safe chemical and doesn't hurt your kids, doesn't hurt your pets. You know, you can spray it all over the place. It's great stuff. I was just so not comfortable with doing that. And so I, uh, I quit and you know, there was a little bit of a ruckus because they wanted, they, they, they paid us money up front. Right. And to, then we do our work, but, uh, there was no contract saying you couldn't just stop and quit in the middle of it. So 
So I did. <laughs> Probably not the most honest thing I have ever done, but uh, that's what I did. And instead, I went down and got a job at a place called uh, Pacific Computers. And for those of you that are in the Calabasas, you know, Malibu area, if you're coming down from Calabasas down to Malibu and you hang a left on, on PCH, right, you know, right as you hang a left onto the freeway, just off to the side, um, there's a kind of a little shopping center, a little strip mall. And there's a, I, I don't know if it's still there, but there's a little shop called Pacific Computers. And it's computer repair. So, you know, I knew about computers at the time. So cool, let's do it. So I got a job there and I started doing, you know, computer repairs up and down, <laughs> up and down the, the beachfront, which was actually really cool. Uh, I got to go inside Tom Petty's home and fix his wireless network. Like, how cool is that? Who can say that? I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. Tom Petty's freaking awesome. So I didn't see him. You know, it was his like his maid and some hot girl on a on a floaty out in the middle of his pool. But it was still pretty cool. Uh, a lot of porn stars, like a ridiculous amount of porn stars. <laughs> so, um, quick side note. Oh man, maybe I shouldn't say this. Shit, why not? Let's just say it, whatever. Let's blow it up. One of the guys I was working with was pretty keen on repairing the porn star's laptops and computers for whatever reason. Yeah, turns out he was um, searching their hard drives for movies and pictures, and he had a sort of kind of secret server back in the corner of the uh, repair shop where, like, terabytes, <laughs> like literally terabytes worth of hard drive space where he was just, you know, copying all the movies and, and pictures over to you. So funny, right? Okay. Moving on. All right. So this is where this whole kind of thing blossoms. Um, I meet a girl. Okay. She's Russian. Um, kind of royalty-ish, right? Her dad was the prime minister of Tajikistan. And I never got the full story. But from what I understand, and this may not be the totally correct you know, story, her father got into a little bit of beef with uh, the Kremlin and Moscow and you know their entire family ended up getting uh, kicked out so yeah so you know obviously it was mob related because you know what in Russia is not but, yeah, the family got kicked out. Um, they got basically barred from ever coming back to Russia. So they, you know, put roots down in California. And this is where I meet her. Now, I'm going to call her Nicole because that is the name that she went by 
but that is not her real name. So for, I guess, I don't know, just to kind of be polite, I'm gonna to continue to say Nicole, okay? So I start dating her. Okay, no, before I start dating her, one night in the hot tub, <laughs> we are just partying and having a good time and she invites me in for a drink and I say, why not? And I go inside her apartment and have a drink with her and things get a little, you know, heated and I get a little, you know, Mormon boy scared. So I jump up and bolt for the door and say, I can't do this. And I start opening the door. And before I know it, she had closed the door and kind of wedged herself between me and the door and asks me what's wrong. And I say, I, you know, I, I can't do this. We're going to do it. And I'm trying to be good. Like, I, I got to go. And she says, no, nope, we're not going to do it. Everything's going to be okay. You know, we're just going to have some fun, blah, blah, blah. And she said it in an intoxicating Russian accent. And so I believed her. And one thing led to another. And then we did do it. And then we did it again and again and again. And, you know, on the car, in the park, wherever. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, I did sins. <laughs> I mean, okay. All right, cool. Whatever. So, um, she has two kids and she is very, I guess kind of, she was 33 at the time. I was 23. Yeah. She had a good 10 years on me. And we had kind of agreed up front that this was just a, you know, friendship thing. No, no feelings. We didn't want uh, to get involved or, or turn, you know, have this turn into an emotional sort of thing. So I was okay with that. She was okay with that. And it didn't work. She got, started to get emotionally attached to me. I started to get emotionally attached to her. And so, I don't know, it just turned into this issue, right? Cause she's got two kids. She's she's in her mind, she wants a man that can provide for her. She wants a man that can, you know, get a house and have a job and, and security, you know, the, the, what the feminine energy usually wants. And I mean, feminine energy and not in a mystical way. I mean, it in a very like, you know, pragmatic reality based sort of way. So, um, yeah, that happens. And we decided to kind of break it off. So <laughs> heartbroken, I jump in my car and drive all the way to Salt Lake City overnight and end up back here. Okay. So I go to my bishop to repent and trust me. Okay. This sounds like I'm just like going off, but this is all going to make sense soon. Go to my bishop to repent and um, he says he thinks that we're going to have to, you know, go to the next level. I don't know if you know anything about Mormonism, but you have a, a hierarchy, right? You have your ward, which is kind of your basic, tiniest, smallest church unit. The head of the ward is the bishop and the bishop Rick. The bishop Rick is like the bishop and his two counselors, okay? 
So the bishop says, well, we're going to have to take this up to the stake president, which is kind of the next level up. So a stake is com comprised of like, I don't know, 10, 12, 5, 5 to 12 to 20 wards. I'm, I'm not even sure, actually. So uh, we take it to the stake president and, you know, he rounds up all of his croonies. And they decide that uh, I'm not worthy to be a member anymore. Now, the a key kind of point to make here is that in in the church, the belief is is that when you you when you stand in front of you know the stake president, the stake president council, I can't remember what it's called. Um, the idea is you kind of tell them what happened from your perspective, the story of what happened. And they all pray about it, and they all receive direct revelation from God, and, you know, know whether or not you're telling the truth, and whether or not you deserve, you know, what, what level of punishment, basically, you deserve. So I, I told them, I explained to them that I tried to get out of it, that I, you know, like, I really didn't want to do it, but apparently that didn't have any bearing on their decision. Now, keep in mind, I have known a lot of people, returned missionaries, that have done way worse, <laughs> way worse than I ever did, who were still allowed to, you know, maybe like they couldn't take the sacrament, which is like communion, right? They couldn't take the sacrament for like mm, six months or something like that. Um, but no, I got excommunicated over this, like straight up. I got excommunicated, no pleading, no anything like it was just, you're done, dude. So I got excommunicated and it was at this point where I kind of had this realization. I once you get excommunicated, it is difficult to get back into the church. You have to like, you have to be you know, on your shit, you can't, you can't do anything wrong, really, you know, I mean, even, even masturbating is a serious setback. So that whole thing kind of got to me and I kind of decided, well, you know, I've never been like, I've always believed in the church, but I've never been totally, what time are we at? Okay, I'll hurry. I've never been totally convinced that it was true. Like, I've never never had, like, you know, some just undeniable experience. So, I kind of decide that if I'm going to put the effort, like, the incredible effort in that's required to rejoin this church, I better damn well make sure I know it's true. Like, no questions. I need to know this is true if I'm going to put that kind of effort into getting back into the church. So, um, I went on a kind of personal spiritual journey. And during this time, I guess the best way to explain this, I was also really frustrated. So, uh, Wow, there's so many things that come into play here. Okay, I started hanging out with the 801, DC 801 crew, and um, what was the other UT 
2600 crew. If you know what the 2600 magazine is or what DEFCON is, then you're already, you already know what I'm talking about. But if you don't, there's a magazine for, man, I hate the word hackers. It's such a, I don't know, such a like weird little word, but okay. It's a magazine for hackers. It's actually called the Hacker Quarterly. <laughs> but the 2600 magazine was something I subscribed to and I read it and I loved it. And I found out there was a local group of people that, you know, read it and, and were down with it. And it was called UT 2600. And so I decided to go check out one of the meetings and I made a bunch of really cool friends. Uh, still a lot of friends. I have, haven't seen some of them for a while, but there's still some of I mean, brilliant guys, every single one of them, just like super, super smart people. I mean, I, I often felt small around them. They were just really intelligent guys, you know? And, but I started hanging out with them and there's kind of like the side kind of intermingling group called DC801. Now DC, DEF CON, comes from the, the hacker conference, DEF CON. So it was DC801 because 801's our area code explanations okay well a couple of the guys from from these groups were using hard drugs and yes I went down that path pretty hard actually <laughs> ah, nosedive right into it okay I I think another good reason for doing this this episode so there's no mud anybody can sling at me after this. I mean, if anybody wants to, you know, confront me, I'll be like, dude, I've already talked about that. That's something that, what are you even talking about? Yeah, of course. Yes, I did that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah. Uh, heroin, cocaine, meth. I mean, just the whole thing. So, um, where are we going to next here? Okay. So, yeah, I got strung out. Turn into a junkie, no shame. It is what it is, it was what it was, whatever, you know. I know who I am now and I know where I'm going, so I'm not even worried about it. Okay, so yeah, I had that experience. I, I had a really hard time in my life, but, and you know, I, I know like your AA guys and your rehab guys are gonna have a really hard time with hearing this, but I was a very functional junkie. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I held my job down. I, I kept doing what I was doing. I was very productive. I kept on top of all my projects. I just had a habit, really. In fact, I think that's how it would be if things were legal. And I think there would be a lot less of it, you know, considering all the other countries that have decriminalized like 100%. I don't think, um, the data is there to support it. We know that the war on drugs is a, an utter and absolute failure. Uh, had I, <coughs> excuse me, had I been in a country where, you know, there was no war on drugs. 
I wouldn't have been so manhandled by, by the state and so utterly destroyed because things didn't start turning into a problem until I got caught. Okay, um, but yeah, that whole other story, not really pertinent, but yes, I have a felony. There you go. There's some mud you cannot sling anymore. Okay, let's see. Okay, so I'm at this point. Excuse me. Where I'm just confused. I've I'm musing. I'm frustrated with everything, and I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to do what is necessary to rejoin the church. So. In my kind of <laughs> just lost in the world sort of state, I decided the only way to really know whether or not there was at least a spiritual reality or, or something akin to that, um, whether it's like some kind of weird quantum mental state or some, I don't even know. There, it, there's like a hundred billion different possibilities out there. But I come up with a plan. How can I know this for sure? How can I know for sure whether or not there's like, man, I've got freaking burp hiccups. I'm so sorry. I totally apologize. How can I know for sure whether or not there is like something else to our reality that we just can't see? So, because at, at this point I had started just like, just diving into literature and research. I, I've read Richter's book on, uh, on Joseph Smith's uh, translations on the Egyptian papyri. I've read, um, oh my gosh, uh, like hundreds of books, not hundreds, probably uh, almost close to 30 books. Um, Grant Palmer's stuff. I've read uh, a bunch of stuff on Mormon mormonthink.com uh, and several other books. There's a really cool guy. I can't think of his name right now, but anyway, point is I just dove into it. I just, you know, aside from all the research, um, I decided to take things into my own hands and see if there's any way I could prove this. So, I knew that I had begun to see things in a very different way. First of all, I started to see things in a very objective, um, scientific way. I started approaching things scientifically, you know, and I decided that there would be no possible way to really find out like, for myself, if there was a spiritual reality with our level of technology. The only way to do it, I thought, was to go inside, you know, get into meditation. Instead of my outward objective reach, do an inward subjective reach. So I started meditating and I started pulling up all the research on meditation, you know, how it, you know, increases neurogenesis, how it um, helps with uh, memory throughout the years, how it helps with your, your mood, you know, uh, emotional and, and mental states, mental health. 
And so I found meditation to be at least intriguing. Okay, so here's kind of... Oh my gosh, I'm going over time. <laughs> oh well. Uh, so here's kind of where, where things got interesting. I started to research the kind of experience that people refer to as astral projection. And I found that there is very little scientific evidence that this is like an actual phenomenon. And the papers that do exist have been just utterly demolished by other researchers. Well, I decided to find out for myself. So I picked up all of the literature I could find on meditation and astral projection. I try to keep it scientifically oriented, but I found that there were some, some books on the occult side that even though they weren't, you know, research papers or anything, they still had really interesting approaches to meditation and astral projection or quote unquote astral projection. Okay. Um, so I began to just like, just devouring this information. I just kept just going through it over and over and I started practicing it. And, you know, mind you, at this point, I was practicing probably five hours a day. I would get up at five. I would do an hour of Qigong. I would do an hour of sitting meditation. I would go to work. Then I would take my lunch break and do an hour of meditation on my lunch break. Then I would come back home. I would do occasionally an hour of meditation after work. But as I was falling asleep at bedtime, I would meditate until I was out. So I was doing a lot of meditation, like a lot. Um, probably nothing even close to what, you know, Tibetan monks do, but I was, I was still doing my fair share. Um, and my goal was to get to the point where I could, you know, induce this experience that people have been talking about, astral projection, and see if it was real. If I could get to the point where I could, quote unquote, get out of my body, I could set up some tests and then that, you know, to determine whether or not I was really out of my body. And since then, I've, uh, I've realized that that even if I had been able to validate 100% that I was at least perceiving things correctly in that state, it still doesn't mean you're out of your body. There could very well be some sort of like, you know, I mean, who knows? There, there could be other things going on aside from quantum mechanics that connect things. And you could be in some sort of like virtual mental network that people construct by like walking around and viewing, like mentally construct. And that's what you're navigating. You know, I mean, there's like just because you can validate that doesn't mean there's a spiritual reality. All it means is that that information is getting to you correctly somehow. So I, you know, a lot of like philosophical, <laughs> like kind of walls started coming up as I was doing this, but, um, but yeah, it just was, oh my gosh. Okay. It took me uh, five, I mean, five years, 
five solid years of doing this every day, I was getting so frustrated because I would bump into people online that, you know, oh yeah, I was like a month into meditating when I was able to astral project like 12 times a day. I'm like, dude, are you serious? Dude, five years to get to the point to where I could have that experience you know, practicing every freaking day, have that experience three times a week at most, two to three times a week. It took me five years to get to that point. And oh my gosh, it was exhausting. But I got there, okay? And even though I wasn't like popping out like other people apparently were doing, I was having that experience and oh my gosh, Gosh, okay, I can understand wholly why somebody would think that they were leaving their body because that's what it feels like when there, there's two ways to induce astral projection. One is like to kind of realize that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, you know, uh, have sort of a from dreaming. Uh, somebody came up with terms like wake induced or dream induced, whatever. It doesn't matter. While you're dreaming, you can realize that you're in a dream and become conscious and then apparently go out and float around and everything. The other way is to um, like meditate and, and just bring your body down to a sleeping state and let your body fall asleep, but keep your mind awake. And then you pop out. That's the method I chose to do because it was the more difficult method. And I figured the more difficult road is no more fruitful. So that's the method I focused on. And wow, yes, it is a crazy experience. Because it there, there's a point, like, you, you can feel it coming. It's this kind of like, I don't even know how to explain it. If you've done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you dislodge. I mean, that's the only way I can explain it. You just kind of pop out. You just dislodge. And there were a couple of times where I would couldn't fully dislodge. Like mostly, for some reason, it felt like I was just attached to my navel and I couldn't like get all the way out. I was just like, you know, flailing, hanging halfway out of my body. That's what it felt like. But so I was doing this and I was setting up experiments. Okay, so I would get like a drawing or um, uh, face cards. Okay, face cards were a good one. And I would you know, set face cards either out, outward facing from the window, just put it in the window seal, or on our table, I would lay things down. And, um, you know, as I was out and about, I would pick it up and look at the other side. Well, oh, and at work, I had my, my coworkers in on it a couple times too. You know, when I would go on my lunch break, they would write something on the whiteboard on, on our, I don't know, figure stuff out board, I guess. And so I would come out and come check it and then go back and, and mind you, that particular with my coworkers, I was only able to exit like three times total out of the, the entire time we were trying that. Like that's how hard this was for me. But there was a really bizarre kind of phenomenon that happened anytime I attempted to like validate. 
to give you an idea, um, when I got out, I could go around and like look at things and see the detail. You know, people say in dream states, when you look at like numbers and letters and stuff, they would all like jumble up and stuff. It never happened to me. You know, I could, I could look at details on just the bumps on the wall and I could look at the thermostat and light switches, whatever, like just no weirdness. But when I got to the point where I was going to look at whatever I had set out to validate the experience, it would just like explode into this. I don't even know what you would call it. Like this, uh, just this weird explosive pattern of all the possibilities. And, and it just like, just sucked me into it and woke me up. Like it was so frustrating. I can't even tell you how frustrating this was like five years I spent of my life getting to the freaking point where I could do this. And every attempt I made, every single attempt I made to try to validate whether or not I was actually out of my body was completely just exploded into this fractal nonsense cyclone of patterns and nonsense. It was so incredibly frustrating. <sighs> just thinking about it just is like, oh my gosh. Oh, anyway. Okay, so I was never able <laughs> to verify whether or not there is another reality like overlaying or, you know, substructure or overstructure, whatever you, you imagine it to be, if there is one. I was never, never, able, ugh, never able to validate that. And so, yeah, so... Um, I was like, uh, you know, at this time I was already, I had already totally made up my mind about the church. I've read all of the literature. I've read all of the history and I just decided that the church was not for me. I, from my perspective, again, if you're Mormon or LDS, I, I'm not trying to influence you or sway you by any means. You know, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But from my perspective, it was just... I came to believe that Joseph Smith was not, if you don't know what Mormonism is, Joseph Smith was the founder of it. Okay. If you don't, didn't know that, uh, that good old Joe Smith was not a prophet it, that he just wasn't. I mean, the Kinderhook plates. Oh my gosh. The Kinderhook plates, the third book of Nephi, the fact that there's, you know, translatory mistakes from the King James edition in the Book of Mormon. Like, how is a prophet from ancient America going to include the actual two English translatory mistakes that King James made in translating it from the ancient scripts? This is not possible. Like, I've heard some people say, oh, you know, it's just, you know, the finesse, God likes to be funny like that. And I'm like, no, dude, that, that's, that's God being confusing. And if that's really the God that exists, then I don't want anything to do with them. I'm sorry. Again, if you're religious or LDS, just pretend I'm talking about my ears. <laughs> yeah, that made no sense. I just mumbled. Okay. So, yeah, I was just totally convinced that it's just not my thing. So, um... But this 
isn't was an important for me this was an important kind of time in my life because it allowed me to really be able to sort between my own biases and between you know what the reality is what i want the reality to be and what the reality really is and I wasn't able to prove it. I just wasn't. And I had to accept that even after five years of work. I mean, I can't imagine the people that do, you know, like 20 year studies with one hypothesis and they end up with something that completely like just shatters that hypothesis and they have to start over again, not start over again, but like, you know, go back, re, you know, restructure their hypothesis and start again. Like I couldn't even imagine doing that after 20 years, but but I did learn that the truth is far more important than what I want the truth to be. And going through that process has had a really profound impact on who I am and how I approach problems. So, um, this is supposed to kind of be like me showing you the more inner me and and letting you decide for yourself whether or not I'm I'm worthy of uh, you know you finding me at least credible enough to to uh, you know follow this I I can I can promise you I'm not trying to mislead anybody I'm not trying to throw any false information in to this research and I sure as hell am not trying to, you know, upturn anything or make things the way that I want them to be. I'm telling you right now, I do not know if STEM theory will hold. I don't know. And that's what this is about. That is exactly what this entire process is about. The, you know, the, the STEM prime research cast. Okay the research interviews that I am hoping to start conducting as soon as I conclude this, this, you know, ex explanatory section. Um, but, uh, I, I'm not about to be like tricked or duped or anything by my own biases. I know what my biases are and I understand that I understand the power that they have. <laughs> like, to a very, very personal level, I'm not about to get tripped up on that. Um, I understand that my only expertise is computer science and coming up on machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, I have worked really hard to know my field, but the STEM, the AI STEM, STEM drive includes psychology, sociology, economics, uh, physics. It's, it's so just like woven into the fabric of, you know, academia in general, that there's no way I can sit down, you know, and, and try to tell you that I know this is going to work or that I know that, you know, enough about anything else that I'm, I'm presenting this as, as, you know, as any kind of, a remedy or fix for our current current situation in this world 
But what I will tell you is that I have done as much research as I could possibly do. I follow Pinker. I've watched almost every like open, open, you know, publicly available course that Robert Sapolsky has ever done. I've got at least, oh, uh, I don't know, a fifth of that bookshelf over there is psychology. Okay. I've got more psychology, proofiness, excellent book. Uh, I've got all my Linux and Unix and programming books down here. I've got my meditation stuff, code. Uh, if, if you're getting started in, in computer development, the two books I would recommend first is this introduction to logic or digital logic design by Hayes. Absolutely fascinating and code by, uh, Oh, Pulse, Pulse, what was his name? Petzold. Okay. Petzold, Robert Petzold. Is that, I'm sorry. I, I think it's Robert Charles, Charles Petzold. Fascinating book. Like seriously, really, really fascinating. I'm a physics buff. I love physics. I mean, and I'm not a PhD. I, I went to college. I've got 168 credit hours completed. That's enough for a master's, at least. I never got my master's. I never even got my associates. <laughs> but uh, I've got 168 credit hours. And not that that's worth a whole lot. But I'm not trying to mislead anybody. And I'm not trying to mislead myself. I'm trying to know and understand what I'm doing the best that I can. And the entire reason for me seeking research interviewees is because of that. I, I can't sit here. Like I know a lot about psychology, probably way more than most, you know, your average person knows, but I am by no means even close to understanding psychology on a level that a PhD has. Same with sociology, same with physics. I love science. Science is just fucking cool. Yeah, dude, I've got Richard Dawkins. I've got you know, all sorts of, I don't even know how many math books I have. Challenging Problems in Geometry, really cool book. Not really a read, it's more of just like a bunch of problems and then a bunch of answers. A book of abstract algebra, haven't read that. Gold ratio, I'm halfway done with that. Modern algebra, that is a really thick book that I have not even cracked yet. Uh, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan is freaking the man. That is A Demon Haunted World. That is an amazing book. This is a book I'm currently rolling through alongside with Morris Klein. Oh my gosh. And if I were to ever recommend a math book, George F. Simmons, this book, Mathematics or Precalculus, Mathematics in a Nutshell. I can't recommend a book more than this one if you're trying to like brush up on your math. This has got just, I, yeah. Watch the other episode, you know, you'll hear everything I have to say about it. But yeah, I have taught myself calculus because when I started getting into AI and machine learning, Yes, you can get into it without knowing mathematics, but it's, I don't like, how do I say this? If I'm going to dive into something like this, I want to know how it works. I don't want to just be given like a bunch of functions and formulas and say, oh, you tweak this, you tweak that. And then, you know, you 
train your your model and you you know do your thing and then ta-da you have an AI okay anybody could do that I wanted to know how it worked so because my my highest level of math in college was statistics I never got into math or calculus so I, I had to teach myself calculus and One of my biggest regrets is not learning calculus, not like just diving into it earlier. Once, once I understood, like, once I had a decent grasp on it and really understood the power of calculus, I was so pissed off at myself for not starting it earlier. Oh my gosh, like, and it's not even that difficult. Like, if you are okay with algebra, you can dive into calculus. That's just the fact of the matter. Don't let the word intimidate you. Don't let, you know, the kind of aura that calculus gives off to, like, frustrate you from learning it. It is so, it, oh my God, especially if you know developing. If you know how to program, you've got calculus in the bag already. It, most of the stuff you know in programming is calculus already. Calculus is like so easy compared to algebra. <laughs> I don't know why they teach it last. I don't know why they turn it into such a big, like this whole thing where, oh my God, calculus. Like it's not like that. Calculus is like, actually pretty easy it's uh, i mean it's you're just graphing really you're basically you're still just graphing but you're just looking at analyzing the graphs a little bit closer you're looking at how to pull pull different types of things you know derivatives and integrals and stuff you're, you're learning how to work with that data and it's not hard it's not hard I promise you, find somebody that knows calculus and have them explain the basics to you because it isn't hard. And the fact that we have made it into this kind of like this thing that is like to be feared and like kind of like you don't really want to get close to it is just a fault of our society. It's a, de you know, a detestable, disgusting thing that we do. Calculus is awesome. Calculus is like so cool i don't even know how to explain it just don't be afraid of it just jump right into it because it is the coolest most useful part of mathematics that we have if you know how to do algebra if you know geometry oh dude you've got calculus already all you have to do is just start learning it and then you can solve all the problems you want you know depending really i mean the really really crazy complex problems but for the most part most of the problems you want to solve, done. So, um, yeah, okay. Well, this is gonna be about an hour and a half. I did a lot better than I thought I was going to do. Oh, okay, yeah, before we close, I want to make an announcement. Um, so, stemprimepodcast at gmail.com, do not email that address anymore. That is, I've gotten rid of it. I didn't even want to send up, set up a forward. If you want to uh, contact me, if you want to 
you know, talk about the project, if you want to, you know, even possibly be uh, an in interviewee and talk about it uh, on the research cast and kind of sift through some of the stuff. <sighs> New contact, okay, is researchcast at a, or I'm sorry, researchcast at stemdrive.ai. Okay, I'm dumping the Gmail address. Um, just trying to level up to a little bit more professional level here. So yes, uh, researchcast, researchcast at stemdrive.ai. Okay, don't get confused between STEM Prime and STEM Drive. STEM Drive is the project. STEM Prime is the, uh, this It's well, it's the simulation and the research cast. Okay. Okay. So that should wrap this up next week. I will finally be done with the three functions of money and the, um, and thermodynamics. Okay. And one more thing. The contest. Okay. For anybody who is listening, and I don't know if you saw the last kind of the last update, the mini episode, but okay, I'm running a contest. I'm going to give you the basics of the criteria, the actual podcast, or I'm sorry, the actual. Um, uh, contest rules are going to be up soon. Um, I'm not going to put them up for two weeks. Okay, I'm giving everybody that's listening to this a head start. So, the, I've had kind of a little bit of a hard time deliberating between, well, deliberating on, trying to decide between, um, there's two contests that I want to do. And I was trying to decide which one I wanted to do first, but I, I decided on doing this contest first, just because the other contest, you're going to need access to a little bit more of information on, on STEM theory. So I'm going to do this one first. And what I would like, okay, is, a submission. Uh, you can start working on this now. Feel free. Um, to everybody that is listening right now, you have a two-week head start before I start pushing this publicly. Okay. I want a new word to use in place of post-scarcity. And there are some reasons for this. Uh, there's actually... <laughs> yeah. Okay. I need a new word. So let me explain to you why, and then I'm, I'm going to tell you what, what you need to do, or at least the basics for what you need to do to enter the contest. The reason why is because post-scarcity, okay, the lexical definition, you know, and the, and the literal definition really don't capture kind of what we're all thinking about when we use post-scarcity 
uh, in a colloquial kind of sense. Like when we're talking about it in science fiction, when we're talking about it, uh, you know, as a, as a topic, you know, when we're just talking about it sort of thing. Because the lexical definition and the literal definition, you know, if you take, a, take it apart and, and break it down to its root words, really don't have anything to do with what we're all thinking about when we're talking about what post-scarcity is. There's a lot of depth to this, actually. And, uh, you know, referring back to words and numbers, um, Anthony Davies brought this up, uh, man, it was a while ago. It was a year and a half, maybe two years ago. That one of the resources that we will never have, you know, never be able to claim that we have passed, you know, that we are post-scarcity is time. That we always have a limited amount of time every day. We all we will never have more. We can't store time. You can't save time. You can't augment time in any way. And that kind of breaks into a. I mean, if you search the internet and look up, you know, just start reading articles on post scarcity, you'll see that not a, people aren't just talking about time. People are talking about all sorts of things like. Enable to claim true post-scarcity. Post-scarcity means after scarcity, right? Like you're, you're up and above and over and past scarcity. Well, everything is scarce. You know, unless you can find a way to manipulate all dimensions of space and time and acquire any piece of anything, whether it's time or matter or, or whatever, in any quantities that you want, you're, you're still in a scarce state. You're still dealing with scarce resources. But I think when we talk about post-scarcity colloquially, we're talking about something that we can, something that is enough, okay? Enough and maybe a little bit extra to handle, to achieve our very best, to just handle everything with just flying colors and just do everything we need to do in a fashion that is just above and beyond what what most people or what most uh, societies are capable of. So, um, yeah. So, so that's kind of the first reason. Okay. Things are will always be scarce, but the point is to be able to acquire have the, the flow of the resources fast enough to where you don't have any bottlenecks. You don't have any stop points. You don't have any issues with getting what you need when you need it. Okay. That's what we're talking about. That's the colloquial sense. That's what we're talking about in most science fiction, even in the culture novels. I mean, they don't have immediate access to all in, you know, all time and, and matter at, at their beck and call. That that's, that's not how the culture works. The culture is massive enough where they have and, you know, refined enough to where they can just pull things as they need it, but they don't have access to infinite amounts of material and resources. And unfortunately, that's kind of the, you know, lexical and, and uh, literal definitions of, of that. So the second reason is that I kind of don't like the word. I used to really like it. Actually, I thought it was a really cool concept. But here, here's my deal. Here's my deal with post-scarcity. Saying post-scarcity 
is looking at what we would like to achieve through the lens of where we are, okay? When you say post-scarcity in a way, you're kind of saying after all the shitty things, after, after the shittiness, after the bad times, like, I mean, literally, that's, that's how the word breaks down, like post-scarcity, right? After the times where we had a really tough time. And that just doesn't sit well with me. If, if we're going to use a word to kind of talk about a state, a, a cultural and social state where we have re-injected ourselves into the flow of energy, you know, from the sun to the earth and back out and waste energy in whatever manner that we, you know, re, uh, just reinsert ourselves into the stream. That is the best we can do right now without higher technology. But the only way we're going to get to higher technology is by implementing some sort of system that allows us to re, you know, re-enter the stream, re-inject ourselves into the natural flow of, of resources. So the fact that it kind of means after or after after the bad times, I don't like it. It's 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 very one-dimensional. It's very from our current perspective. You know, I want a term, and you know, I was going to do this on my own. I was going to do you know go through all my Latin prefixes and fixes and suffixes and started, you know, doing all my wordplay and everything and come up with the word. But I thought, you know, a, a contest would be a pretty cool way to do this. So um, I would like a word that, you know, structurally more represents better, represents better, represents what, what we're talking about here in a much more refined way than post-scarcity does. I mean, think about it. Like, what a terrible, <laughs> terrible way to, after the war. Really. Oh, yeah, we're limited times. We call it after the war. The, the, this, these, these are the good times, after the war. Like, what? Yeah, it's, it's nonsense. It really is nonsense. I want something that, like, just, just hammers out the feeling that we are in this sort of state because we are here and this is how things are and it's awesome. That's what I want to portray. I want the feeling of, you know, you know, I want a word that 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 just, you know, emanates the feeling of of a culture being in the midst of just this awesome, controlled, resource, you know, friendly, stream injected, whatever. That is just dealing with everything in a very controlled and very efficient and effective way. <clears throat> That's what I want. So that is the contest, but it's not that easy. Okay, you can't just send me a word. I want ten, no more than, I'm sorry, no more than 10 pages, no fewer than two pages. Now I want uh, your etymology detailed, okay? So don't take more than a couple pages on this. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want more than two pages on your etymology. I want your etymology listed. I want your, you know, all your roots and suffixes, infixes, prefixes, whatever you want. Okay, listed. And I want their etymologies. And I want 
you know, why you decided to bring all those uh, words together. Okay. Now, um, and then the rest of your essay, I guess, okay, I want you to explain why it fits the STEM, uh, sorry, STEM theory so well. I want you to, to kind of like say why it fits STEM theory, but I don't want it to be specific to STEM theory. I want it to be a word that replaces post-scarcity generally. I don't want it to be a word that is just kind of just, you know, specific and very just narrowly defined to what STEM theory is. I want it to be something that somebody could use that you could talk about the culture with this word. You know, you could talk about Star Trek. You, you could talk about uh, the Orville. Okay, I don't want something that, that's just like narrowly defined to just what I'm doing here. I want something that can be generally used. So, first place. Okay, first place, we get a Bose sound link. It is the Revolve, uh, the newest one. I, don't know if, I hope it's not getting blurry on you, okay. Um, very, very amazing speaker. Uh, you also get the charger cable with it, and you will also get um, a Stem Prime hoodie, okay? Runner up, well, runners up, I guess, second and third place. Uh, second place, we'll get a hoodie and a t-shirt, and third place, we'll get a t-shirt. So I'm, I'm, I want people to feel like, you know, this, this will be worth their time. Uh, I'm definitely not like a multi-billion or multi-million company yet, or yet. I, if I ever am going to be, I don't really care. I just want to change things for the better, you know? So that is first place. Second place. Third place is a t-shirt. And yeah, speaking of which, t-shirts should be, the, okay, Royal Press is who we're working with. He, the owner is actually my brother-in-law, but um, I think they're having some issues right now, but I'm, I'm gonna have to talk to them. I think they're gonna be back up and running soon. So um, the proofs, or I mean, I will have some images up soon of, of, of the shirts and the hoodies and I'm thinking about the stickers, but I don't know if I want to do that yet. Anyway, okay. So that's where that is. Okay, that is the contest. Um, start working on it now. Okay, because as in two weeks, not this next Monday, and not but the coming Monday, I'm going to push this publicly. All right. Wow. This has been like two hours. I am so sorry. <laughs> Eh, it is what it is. Did what I did. But uh, definitely tune in next week. The Three Functions of Money episode is going to be just... It's going to be a whopper. I may even be breaking it up into several episodes. Um, or, you know, not not in series, but, you know, concurrent. They're, they're all going to come out together. But it's going to be several parts, maybe. I'm still trying to decide whether... You know, you know, one three and a half hour episode versus like three one hour and fifty minute episodes is going to be better. I don't know. 
maybe you can let me know before next week comes. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's the end of this one. Thank you for watching. I hope that I hope that gives you a better idea of who I am, where I'm at. Um, I, I'm very, very careful with with not letting myself get stupid. Uh, one of the guys in the uh, in the Reddit forum accused me of, you know, being vic falling victim to the Dunning Kruger effect, and that is so not true. <laughs> I know I don't know shit. Trust me, I know I don't know all that stuff. That is why I am doing this. I, I cannot, I could not in good conscience push a project like this without interviewing experts. There's, there's just no way. That, this is way too big of a responsibility. <laughs> like way too insanely massive of a project to think that I could just tackle this by myself, you know, and like, you know, the help that I have. But yeah, trust me, this is not a dying Kruger effect scenario, like at all. I am so vividly aware that I do not know, that I, I just do not know psychology and sociology. I mean, Aside from the books that I read, aside from my fascination with the topic and the fact that I read everything, I'm not a PhD. I have not gone through years and years of schooling and training to understand this stuff. So, yeah, no, that is not my problem. I promise you. I am so insanely, sadly, vividly aware that I do not know what the fuck I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. Which is why this is so important. Like, this is why I need the criticism. This is why I need experts to come and take this out, check this out and, and let me interview them and walk through all of the, you know, nuances of, of STEM theory and what it's all about because I, I can't do this by myself. I just cannot do this by myself. There's no possible way I could do this by myself. I can write the code, but and I cannot for the life of me, even if I did nothing but studying for the next 20 years, I would not be in the position to be able to do this by myself. There's no way. There is just way too much to understand and know, which is the entire purpose of the research cast. This is not a podcast, really. This is a research endeavor and this episode is just to tell you that I'm not trying to be sneaky here. I, I, I'm doing my best to be humble. I'm doing my best to make sure I have access to the experts that can tell me if I'm either being a dumbass or whether or not I'm going down the right way, you know, or whether or not I have completely fumbled this up. That is what this is about. So Dunning-Kruger, man, that is, no, nope, not even close, dude. <laughs> I, I, I almost, I was kind of upset that he said that at first, but then I realized, hey, he's like so put off by this whole thing and what I'm like claiming as possible that he didn't even listen to any of the episodes or, or read any of, oh, he, he managed 
to read some of the old white papers that I have from like years ago that I completely had forgotten to take it down. So they are down now. They are not there to poison or pollute anything anymore. But yeah, uh, I'm not letting my beliefs and personal biases or anything get in the way because this is too delicate. I can't, I cannot allow anything like that to, to pollute this effort. There, there's just no way. I just will not. I have stopped my entire life for this project. Why? Why would I allow something like that to just screw it all up? No. Come on, dude. So, there you have it. Okay? That is me in a nutshell. That is why I am the way I am. That is why I'm doing what I am doing, aside from like the actual, you know, uh, my actual experiences in my, you know, in my profession, dealing with corporate people, interesting people, and just seeing the just rampant, just, it's not, evil it's just like corruption and just just vile decision making processes because as you know like what we were talking about at the beginning when when you have something like money that forces you to make that kind of comparison between human lives and money you're gonna have problems man it's just the fact you cannot get out of any sort of the moral issue you know, having any sort of moral issues when you're doing that you just can't there's no way around it and that's why i am proposing what i am proposing because my original focus was to see if we could come up with a system some sort of social structure that would make corruption impossible that would make it not just impossible, but just not something that people would even want to engage in. And it just so happens that as I was, you know, trying to work everything out and, and look at everything, and, oh, wow, hey, this looks like it would, you know, kickstart post-scarcity too. That's interesting. So post-scarcity really, from my perspective, is like kind of a side effect. All right, we are wrapping this up. I have gone... <laughs> way over time so uh join me next week for the big one oh my gosh i hope this is the only one that is like gonna take this much time and this much effort to complete the episodes but yeah take care of each other uh this is going to be a lot of work like a lot of work yeah it's it's I, I'm frequently overwhelmed by just the insane amount of work that is still ahead of me. But I'm not stopping until I know whether or not this is going to work. I can't. I can't. Like, how could I? I mean, if you were me, would you... And you saw this and you really saw, you know, even objectively that this could actually kickstart, like really 
kickstart post-scarcity and remove corruption and crime for the most part, would you stop? I can't stop. I just can't stop. I mean, my life is getting strained, but I can't stop. This isn't something I can just like sit down on and hang up. I've started this and it's not something I can just stop because if this works, oh my gosh, if this works, even like half, even if this is half of what I, I expect it to be capable of doing, it would be worth it. A quarter. Shit, man. Cut crime in half or cut crime down by a quarter. Cut corruption down by a quarter. Cut inequality and, and you know, homelessness and, and unemployment down by a quarter. That would still be worth like just, you know, one dude throwing his life out the window. So I can't stop. I just can't. I have to get to the bottom of this. All right. Thank you so much for following and watching and listening and, you know, whatever, whatever platform you've decided to um, follow us on. I promise you I'm going to be, I cannot not be objective. Like I have to be objective. There, there's no way I, I could possibly feel okay with, you know, continuing on with this project without reigning the that side of me in i just it's just not even a question all right be safe guys seriously be safe i know there's a lot of crazy different conflicting information coming up right now but don't 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 put yourselves in danger take care of each other and i'll see you next week thanks bye